Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Toomey, I'm the Chair of the Green Institute. Um, the session's on the truth and politics. Um, what we're doing is, is we're doing four brief 10-minute presentations. First, to throw out some questions and issues, and then the majority of the session is going to be an interactive discussion. So first up, I'd like to introduce Dr Rod Lamberts. Rod is the Deputy Director of the Australian National Centre for Public Awareness of Science, and he's a former national president of the Australian Science Communicators. So if you want to know about communicating science, Rod's your man. Thanks, gang. Can you hear me okay if I stand up? I probably don't need the microphone that much. I'm just going to talk to you for two or three hours about a few ideas I had while I was asleep. Hope that's cool, isn't it? It's hard to know what to tell you guys. I don't know what you already know, so what I'm going to do is give you what I hope is you know, a decently patronising quick taste of Science Communication 101. Just a couple of things that are critical, and maybe we stop there, we'll see how we're going. When, I, when science-minded folk talk about the truth, they tend to talk about science facts, as you'd expect, and I, I'm assuming there's a lot of science-positive people in the room who have a, a similar view, um, which sounds great until you test that out. And our whole sort of, I'll call it a movement, our discipline, our area, science communication, started with this premise that the public are illiterate in science. There was a panic in the UK about, uh, in the 80s, where they did a massive survey of the public. They asked them all these allegedly basic science literacy questions, and lo and behold, everyone got them wrong. They got, they got terrible results. They heard that you know, the people didn't know that the Earth revolved around the sun. People didn't know why there were seasons when they were asked, is it true that carbon dioxide comes from plants? A lot of people got that wrong. They think didn't. And so there was this, this, this raging horror in, in the UK. And they set up a, a committee in the House of Lords called the Council of Public Understanding of, uh, of Science, or COPUS. The ironry gland people were out for the day. So we got pus. And with pus, I think it adequately described the situation as they saw it. So with pus came this, we must make the public literate in science. And so a grand movement began, a billion pounds was spent, and a few years ago they declared it a failure. And part of, yeah, I know, it's good, only a billion pounds though. Part of the problem with that was this notion that um, scientists have the answers, and the public are this great empty-headed bucket of ignorance, and if the scientists wander up to this bucket and pour the delicious science facts into the public's heads, they will become empowered superhero style with science and they will act rationally and according to all the science evidence. None of you would think that, right? None of you. Only, yeah, only these other idiots from the past. So what we started to work out was that doesn't work. Um, often, in fact, as you know very well, you give people facts, they become more resistant and maintain their positions even more strongly. So we start to go, oh, hang on a minute, emotions are important. Values are important, unambiguously. And emotions and values will trump facts pretty much every time if you're in the mood, which is great until you over-acknowledge them in a debate that does have to have facts. <laughs> Suddenly emotion is an unassailable uh, defence against facts, and if you don't acknowledge people's emotions, then you're being a dirty bastard who doesn't care about them and democracy has failed. <laughs> have you come across this? So a disagreement is undemocratic. Uh, if, you, if in a democracy we all get everything we want, that's apparently how it works, and if we don't get exactly what we want, it's undemocratic. And so we get into this strange space where there's no way to tell the difference between a debate, a conflict, a conversation, an argument, etc. And I'm, yeah, I'm guessing green politics is pretty aware of all this. So the only minor solution, I'll offer you one solution, because it's the takeaway I do whenever I talk to people, particularly if I'm doing some kind of science uh, communication consulting, whenever I talk to people about this, and I'll use climate scientists as a, as a grand example, the number of times I've spoken with them and they say to me, what we need to do is get more people to understand the climate science. And I say, mm -hmm, why? 
so that they will recycle more, they'll stop you know, burning CO2, they won't drive these cars, da 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 So what's the science got to do with it? Well, the science will demonstrate to them that the facts are in and blah 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 blah. So, no, that's not what you want. What you want is to change people's behaviours. You're not even clear on your own goals, so let's start with that. And usually, they push back from their chair and go, ooh. So I feel like I get a very, it's, it's a cheap win, but it's, it's true. Not clear on our goals. People aren't clear on their goals. People have a, a value associated with what they want to achieve, but very rarely a clear path to it. So one of the best things I can offer you is to be really clear on the goals that you think you have in mind, get other people to challenge them first. Don't believe because you have strong opinion or a whole bunch of facts it's going to work. Get someone in like me who's going to probably piss you off a bit at first, but in the end will become friends again, because the idea is to challenge what you think you really are trying to do, and then possibly and usually also challenge the way you think you're going to get there. Um, I'm just going to stop there. I think that's enough, isn't it? Yeah, I'll hand over to next. Next, we've got Dr. Benedetta Bravini talking post-truth and public discourses on Adani. Benedetta is a journalist, media activist, and senior lecturer at the University of Sydney. She's published a whole pile of interesting research and books, in particular, Carbon Capitalism Communication, Confronting Climate Crisis. Thank you. Benedetta. Thank you. So thank you also for having me here today. I was actually very pleased to hear so many times Bologna mentioned throughout these two days, because I'm actually from Bologna. And, um, and because when I moved to Australia um, around three years ago, um, I really found uh, myself in a very interesting situation where when I was a, a kid, I was always told that in order to make a difference and to make, you know, to give life a meaning, you need to make a difference socially. So you need to give to your community and you need also to see if you could change the world just a little bit. And when I arrived in Australia and I gave my first lecture at the University of Sydney and I asked my students how they thought they could make a difference, they actually gave me a very different answer. So making a difference became making a difference for yourself that also meant reaching success that was really economic success. And I was really surprised because I've been... Um, um, you know, living throughout in different countries, and I always thought that when I was living in the U.S., I was really in the mother um, country of supercapitalism, and therefore, you know, where neoliberalism was born. And I wasn't expecting quite that when I moved to Sydney. So I thought, okay, so what's happening here? And I actually thought, uh, well, probably the dominant discourse, the dominant ideology also around Australia these days and around the elite is really that to make a difference in the world, you need um, absolutely to try to um, really um, make uh, you know, a contribution to your personal success. And this is precisely how ideology works. It's subtle, you know, we don't actually necessarily admit to it, but that's the way in which it captures our imagination. That's the way in which we, we can relate. It's a sort of a gut feelings reaction we have to that. And this is precisely also what is used and, and exploited when discourses around post-truth are proliferating around the world. Um, but like, I think that you're, I'm sure that, you know, Everybody in this fantastic audience, where I really feel at home, finally, um, like have heard this fantastic quote, for example. And this is just the beginning for what I want to unveil today. Um, uh, this is one of my favorite, and we'll come back during the presentation. Um, Post-truth. Now, it became, in the US and in the UK, um, the 2016 word of the year, according to Oxford and Macquarie Dictionary. And, uh, and then we had actually a very 
famous comedian, Stephen Colbert, that went even farther to create the word truthiness, that in my view is even more interesting, you know, because it helps us defining what's going on in contemporary politics beyond Australia, beyond the US, beyond the UK and Brexit rhetoric. Now, truthiness, the belief in what you feel to be true rather than what the facts will support. And so I thought, well, okay, so my Americans, um, journalist friends, my UK, Brexit, journalist friend, friends are actually telling me that this is just an American phenomenon. So let's see if it happens also in Australia. And so about a year ago, I started with a colleague uh, from the University of Sydney, an anthropologist, looking into all public debates around Adani in Australia from 2010. So we looked in the Capital Monitor and also in Factiva, you know, as databases. And we looked for, you know, keywords like obviously Adani and Karma Combine to see if truthiness could actually have relevance also for Australia, and especially um, when Adani discourses um, operated. So the idea is that for us, uh, truthiness um, had to have three components. So the first component is this logic of gut feelings. So anytime you refer to something that can resonate with you, but is absolutely not based on fact. The second element is that you need to make uh, facts that are absolutely crystal clear debatable. So in other words, you have to create doubts. So this is the second component on truthiness. And the third is utter lies. And I think that we are all very aware of the, you know, the, the, um, the employment of lies by, by politicians. I mean, it's a tradition. It's an historical tradition all around the world. So just a little background of Adani. I'm not going to spend a lot of time because I think you know much more than I do. But just as I thought, it actually it was very interesting at least to bring two important facts about Adani. So the importance and significant contribution um, um, in terms of greenhouse emission that we should never forget. And then I have this great slide that actually explains that burning the coal from the chemical mine um, will mean you know, to, um, to burn more than the annual emissions of Sri Lanka, more than Bangladesh, and um, around you know, the same of Malaysia and Austria. And in terms of city, you know, more than Delhi, and actually around you know, six times those of Amsterdam and around 20% more than your city. So I think that actually these data are very interesting you know, to, uh, to help us understand what's really going on. And I don't think I saw this in the media, and by being a media scholar, I also blame the media, uh, especially in Australia, you know, for not reporting clearly about this, even though we have great examples of this happening. So now, why Adani discourses, public discourses, in my view, actually would you know, exemplify truthiness? in public discourses. First component is um, obviously the gut feelings logic, okay? So where do we see the logic of gut feelings? I think that actually everybody knows this fantastic quote that has been used many times you know, by your former prime minister. So the idea that coal is part of your history and it's part of your future. The idea of the God's right to drill. The idea that it's almost a sort of a religion duty for Australia to keep drilling, okay? This is precisely a, a, a component of the logic of gut feelings because it speaks to Australian, you know? So without being based on fact. And I have another one that is actually, 
even more interesting because it appeals to desire to actually try to change the world and therefore, you know, to try to save Indians, you know, from, you know, their poverty. So by building Adani, we can actually contribute to reducing poverty and help those Indians. And these are all official documents. These are all taken from Hansard, taken from media, press releases, so it's all in the public domain. Um, so this is probably my, my favorite example. But then we move to the second component. So the second component is, okay, you have some facts that are very difficult to challenge. As I showed you, you know, the amount of carbon emission generated by Adani, very difficult to challenge them. So what do you do to make sure that you create doubt? What you do? Well, you use oxymorons, for example. So I'm sure that you know one of the most famous one that has been used throughout the, the campaign, clean coal. Clean coal is, you know, probably one of the best examples, and I showed Brandy's earlier, you know, using again and again the word clean coal. There is another one that we picked. Obviously, I'm not giving you all the study. If you're interested in the book, there is a flyer with a discount there. So, you know, if you're interested to read the full study, you can, you can go there. But besides this fantastic quote, we have this one that is one of my favorite. Sustainable mining, right? So... <laughs> Why do we even argue about something that would be so good for the world and so good for us? Will help us, obviously, um, you know, reducing poverty in India, but we also help developing communities. Sustainable development, sustainable money. This has been used by pretty much everybody. Everybody at the federal, at the, in Queensland, you know, always talking about the way in which, um, in order to develop the economy, um, poor economy of northern Queensland, this was only the answer we could give. And then, obviously, I think you're more aware and more familiar with this component, the third component of truthiness, which is lies, utter lies. Just statements that cannot be called in other way, and actually nowadays, in the academic community, bullshit has become a quite a fashionable academic word that I don't normally enjoy to use because probably the translation from Italian to, to English wouldn't be, you know, um, um, all right. So I prefer to use um, lies, utter lies. Well, um, would be cazzata. So, you know, I think, um, you know, if you, is there any Italian speaker in the, in the audience? Well, it's better not to translate it again then. <laughs> so, um, this is obviously one of the most famous statements, but, you know, about the jobs. So jobs creation by Adani. Now, 10,000 jobs has been repeated and in, um, pretty much 300 times. And, uh, you know, just in the entry, we looked at from 2010 to 2016. And this is absolutely untrue because it's based actually on, you know, again, fantasies. It was never said, even by the Adani economist during, you know, one of the numerous, you know, court case, he stated that it was actually just 1,400 during the life of the mine. So this is, you know, a very different statement. And this, again, you know, not just uh, laundry, you know, used this argument, but it was repeated and repeated and repeated because that's also how ideology works. We need, you know, to repeat the same thing and then, then it can, you know, really penetrate us in a way. And, uh, and then another of my favorite um, untruth stat statements is the one um, about um, the idea that Queensland will not fund, so the government is not going to fund Adani. Now, you know pretty well about the rail works that will be 
you know, done and you know pretty well about the billions of dollars that we've been invested in that, but you also know about the license, the water license for about 60 years. So if this is not public money, what is it? Right? So this again has been used so many times. And then, you know, I could go on, but I only have 10 minutes, but I want to show you another of the, the, my, my favorite um, quote about the Adani mine not impacting the Great Barrier Reef. So in other words, again, you know, this mine that we know is considered to be the second biggest carbon bomb in the world is not going to impact at all. So we won't have more ships around the Barrier Reef. We won't have any, any problem with water pollution, any problem created by coal transportations in the region, nothing. And uh, in fact, as you can see, um, it's only three kilometers inland. Uh, now we're near the Great Barrier Reef. And the protection in place to protect the Great Barrier Reef are all there. So, so you know, the reason of this paper is really not to depress you, but it's really to highlight that truthiness is built throughout different communication strategies. And actually also Rod was talking precisely about like trying to appeal to emotions, but this is also why we are getting manipulated very often. So um, without the three components, I would, I would think that actually the Adani campaign to build the mine would have been less, probably less effective. And uh, so it's important just to keep in mind that we have other subtle strategies, you know, beyond lies to achieve actually uh, these objectives. And uh, how do we uh, respond to this? Well, you know, I'm an educator, so I think and you know, that it's very important to encourage critical thinking, so it's important to do so in the high school, it's important to do so obviously in universities, but uh, um, it's a, it's a long-term strategy, it's a long-term also uh, endeavor. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to introduce to you now Julie Macken. She's a former senior journalist with the Australian Financial Review, head of legacy media at Greenpeace Australia in the past, and she's currently working on a PhD at the Institute for Social Justice. And she's going to talk to us about truth and the public discourse on climate change. Julie. Okay, so I'm going to... I've shifted a little from that. And I should just say I'm at the beginning of a doctorate on propaganda, so I'm very interested in everything that's been said so far. Um, I guess I want to talk about three things before I get to the good news about fake news. The first is I want to say, and I, I guess I'm particularly targeting uh, fake news and the opportunity it potentially gives us. Um, the first thing I want to say is it's been with us always. Anyone who's read the you know, New Idea or the Women's Day would understand that we have always had fake news. Um, up until recently, it has been the domain of women. Now it's all of us, so this is truly marvellous. Um, I'd also like to say that it is a business model that is extremely lucrative. There are people sitting around various parts of the world mocking up uh, yarns that look like news, tipping crap into it, and we're clicking on it, and we're seeing the advertising, and they're getting paid by the advertisers. So it's a very lucrative business model, um, and I think we're really in the early days of it. Um, and obviously, it's been weaponised by social media. And we're seeing it deployed really effectively across a number of campaigns. So it is very powerful and it has 
very powerful friends, and I think we are in the early days of it. I probably will keep saying that. Secondly, I want us to just be aware that however clever we think we are, and I'm assuming everyone in the room thinks they're as clever as I think I am, and it's a lot, um, <laughs> we are all changed by it. We might think that we are the insightful ones that can kind of view this from afar, have great disdain and chortle quietly about the fools who were taken in by that. We are taken in by that and we are changed by that and we need to be cognizant of that. And, you know, I'll give you a humiliating example. I was um, <clears throat> doing a radio program last year on fake news on air interviewing um, Professor Peter Frey from UTS, who is talking about the stunning work that's being done by New York University in the Trust Project. They're actually running a project with the New York Times to build trust in the media. I would argue the horse has bolted on that. But anyway, God love him. And he, he was talking about fake news, and he said, you know, fake news like the David Cameron thing. And I said, what do you mean the David Cameron thing? And he said, oh, you know the thing about David Cameron having sex with a pig? And I went, we did have sex with a pig. And he went, no, he didn't. I said, yes, he did. He had sex with a dead pig. And he said, no, Julie, he actually didn't have sex with a pig. And we're on air. I said, are you sure about that? And he went, yeah, I'm confident. I'm confident he didn't have sex with a pig. And um, he said, why do you think he did? And I said, well, because I'm Irish Catholic. And... Uh, <laughs> And I, frankly, think the British should do things like that. <laughs> Seriously. You know, I have been brought up on the horrors of Britain, and particularly the elites of Britain. And I, I literally, when I heard that story, I went, yeah, that'd be right. <laughs> and I'm really glad some of the panellists have already raised this. It goes to the question of truthiness. It goes to the question of ideology. It goes to the question of it resonated with a pre-existing bigotry in me that that would happen. And, and I, I didn't see that. Despite having a brain the size of a planet, I did not see my own bigotry in that. And I, that's what I say, we need to be aware that we are being transformed by this. A friend of mine was telling a mate how much I hate public speaking and how terrifying it is, and she said, why don't you kind of prepare for it? I went, oh, okay. <laughs> She said, why don't you write it down? I went, yeah, okay. So I've written it down. I keep getting lost. A confession about fake news. I have spent the last well, three or four years basically as a propagandist by trade um, for various kinds of outfits like Greenpeace and the Greens and various others. That's what I was employed to do. And before that, I was a journalist. And, you know, I'm here to draw a distinction between the two. But I've got to say that the other thing I want to recognise is the enormous temptation of fake news. Because I give you the drum, spending a week on a feature, talking to a million people, crossing every T, dotting every I, taking it to the lawyers, having the best parts of it taken out, redoing it, and after a week finally getting to produce it, and then seeing someone just tip crap into a word template, a kind of news template, and then have it get a million clicks on it, there is a temptation there to cut corners. You know, there is a temptation there to not lie because um, that's not what I do. But there is certainly a temptation there to, to run the kind of rhetorical flourishes through the first, second, third and fourth part and then get to the kind of story afterwards. So 
again, that's I, I flag that because I think we need to be aware of that, that that is a real thing and that it's a real thing we must not succumb to. So the good news is, and, you know, I just think it's the most exciting moment that we've had for a long time right now. I think the opportunity that fake news uh, gives us and is also symbolic of is that we're in a moment of enormous slippage and fluidity. We're in a moment where the ideology that was just spoken about, ideologies of all kinds, are being challenged and they're breaking down. And, you know, I think it was Althusser or could have even been Gramsci that said, you know, ideology doesn't walk in and say, hi, my name's ideology. It doesn't announce itself and we rarely see it until it's breaking down. And we're seeing ideology right now breaking down. This fake news and what it symbolises tells us that there is space being created. I'm old enough to remember Paul Keating 25, 30 years ago when he started talking about the economy as if it was something we should all think about. And I thought, you have got to be kidding. This was an Australia that didn't think about the economy. We thought about taking sickies. We thought about going on the dole under a different couple of names. We thought about a lot of things, but we didn't think about the economy. Within five years of him flagging that, it was, you know, conversations across the table about mortgages, interest rates, floating the dollar. We were concerned about the national economy, the global economy. We're talking about all sorts of things. We became a nation. We are a nation concerned about the economy. That's under threat. That neoliberal uh, frame of how we should live is under threat, and we know that because we can see it. We know that because, you know, later the new, new New Zealand's prime minister comes out and challenges uh, capitalism. We we can see the feet of clay in capitalism. We can see the feet of clay in the corporate sector. Corporates have always been fairly loathed, but you know there was a human face to them. Now, not so much. Banks, everyone hates a bank. Now we doubt the banks, and that's a different quality issue. So what I'm suggesting is that there are a whole lot of set pieces right now that are now in play. There is room created by fake news, and fake news um, is symbolic of a deep uncertainty. Our shared stories about who we are and what we are are breaking down. I would argue the big two meta-narratives of the last hundred years, you know, international socialism and capitalism, are lying face down in the pool. We can talk about whether or not they're able to be revived, but those were two huge pillars of stories that held us in creative tension. They have collapsed. So if we are willing to do the footwork, if we are willing to do get trench after trench after trench of stories told of work done of new way new projects new ways of being new economies new ways of organizing capital new ways of organizing energy new ways of organizing democracy if we are ready and able to do the heavy lifting on that right now we've got the opportunity to do it because everything is in play at the moment. I'll leave it at that. Thanks.
Thanks, Julie. Now to our final speaker, and I hope you're getting ready with a whole pile of questions. Coming up next, we've got Mark Chenery. Mark is probably best known to you as one of the co-founders of Common Cause Australia. Uh, Common Cause are very well known for the work that they do around bringing values into communication, and that's what Mark's going to talk to you about. And I think it really completes a nice circle in the stories that we've had here through truthiness and back out the other end. Great, I'm coming out the other end. That's, um, I do a lot of framing with clients, and that's, um, that's an interesting one. I won't say it was a slip of the tongue. Okay, all right. So, so my perspective on this, um, thank you. My perspective on this uh, is not that different from, from what uh, others have said so far, and that is that we, uh, we talk about this post-truth world, but in many ways we've always lived in a post-truth world in the sense that our brains uh, are, are not built to, uh, to seek out truth. They are much more built to seek out meaning. And as such, uh, truth and facts and figures will always play second fiddle to a good story. So Mark Twain, Mark Twain said it first, but uh, Boardwalk Empire said it better, and that is that we should never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Um, and that's uh, as true in politics as it is in, in the advertising world, uh, world I, uh, for my sins, used to work in. And uh, you can see this as a, as a cynical view of politics, maybe even an accurate view of politics, but a sad one that we should change. But the reality is that this is the way our brains work in the real world. Uh, our brains are constantly rejecting and ignoring facts and figures because they don't fit with the stories that are swirling inside our head. Um, and uh, we know a lot of this from, from social psychology. A lot of what Common Cause is based on is so social psychology, cognitive linguistics, and behavioral economics. Uh, and uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's a very famous Nobel Prize-winning psychologist, who won his Nobel Prize not for psychology but for economics, for introducing the idea to economists that this, uh, this rational, utility-maximizing homo economicus was not real. That, for them, was a bit of a, a, a perception shift, uh, to say the least. Now, some uh, social psychologists estimate as much as 97% of human thought is subconscious. Uh, and the way in which people make decisions the majority of the time, and, and I'm not saying people can't be rational, we absolutely can be rational, but it is hard work uh, and it doesn't come easy and as such the vast majority of the time the way we make decisions in life whether it's what to have for breakfast or who to vote for on polling day is driven much more by how we feel so we go with what feels more right to us the decision that feels right and then what we go ahead and do uh, all subconsciously is we go out and we find all the facts and figures that, that back up that feeling this is why arguing with people based on the facts, so if someone disagrees with you and you, they feel like what you're saying is wrong, it doesn't matter how many facts and figures you throw at them, they're not going to change their mind. All you're actually doing is entrenching their view because what happens when we are challenged on how we feel, we are challenged to go out there and find more in facts and figures that back us up. That's what we do, that's what they do, and it's not a matter of intelligence. In fact, the more intelligent you are, the better you are at doing this. So, uh, a lot of what we know about values uh, comes from a professor of social psychology, a professor of psychology, sorry, called Shalom Schwartz. Now, um, values are important here because values are one of those subconscious biases we use in order to determine whether things feel right or they feel wrong. 
so what Schwartz did in the 70s and 80s is he gathered international survey data from over 65,000 people in 68 countries around the world to the point where it identified 58 universal values, the values you see here. Uh, and by the way, uh, if you can't see that, uh, then on our website you can download a, a, a free Common Cause handbook which has all this stuff in it. Um, and what was more important than discovering that there were these values that tended to occur consistently across countries and cultures and socioeconomic status was the fact that they tended to occur in a coherent system. So what you're looking at here is not the way Schwartz decided to arrange the values, it's the result of a multidimensional scaling analysis, which basically means that the closer the values are to each other on this map, the uh, stronger the connection between the values, the more likely it is that someone's going to hold these values uh, strongly in the same person at the same time. And the further the dots are away from each other on the map, the, more likely, the less likely they are to be connected. So the less likely they are to be prioritised by the same person. Um, what Schwartz did then is that he... Uh, oh, I'm getting confused by my two interfaces. What Schwartz did then is he uh, divided the map up into 10 values groups. So he basically drew lines into these groupings that he thought made sense, and he called these the 10 uh, key motivational goals of human beings, and they are benevolence, which is around uh, uh, thinking beyond your own needs and welfare and thinking of that of others, but limited to people with whom you have frequent contact, so your family and friends, things like honesty and loyalty and, uh, and responsibility. Universalism, again, thinking about others and the needs of others beyond yourself, but this time not limiting it to your in-group, so it extends out globally, including to other elements of nature. And then self-direction. Self-direction is about being true to who you are, not necessarily being held back by the expectations or traditions of others. Stimulation, uh, excitement and novelty in life, hedonism values, bodily pleasure, sex, food, achievement, which is around competition, wanting to be, seeing the world as a hierarchical place in which there is a ladder from, you know, a list from the top to the bottom and you want to be towards the top and not towards the bottom. Power values, things like social power, so power over others, wealth, authority, preserving my image, values which are around uh, again, seeing the world as a hierarchical place in which it is dangerous to be at the bottom of the heap. It is not good. And if the place is a scary hierarchical place, you want to be at the top of the heap, not the bottom. Uh, security values, which are essentially around fear. So when people are scared of something, when we use scare tactics to get people to join our cause, what we're doing is using security values. So fear of our health, fear of our uh, national security, uh, fear of our sense of belonging. Then we've got conformity and tradition values. So tradition values is pretty much what it says on the tin, respect for tradition. But importantly, respect for the traditions that are being passed on to you from your culture or your community, not necessarily respecting everyone's traditions equally, which is much more broad-mindedness up in uh, universalism. And then conformity, which is restraining your own actions and impulses to be in line with the expectations of others. Now, a really important thing about, I do this normally in a day, so I'm going to fit it into 10 minutes. Normally, when we think about values, we think about people in value stereotypes. Some people have these values, other people have other values. Um, but the reality is, and what Schwartz has found and what's been confirmed um, in, in literally thousands of subsequent studies, is that we all have all of these values in, in all of us. The difference between us is the degree to which we prioritise some values over others. Uh, and this matters because a whole bunch of studies have explored the relationship between our values and our goals in life and our attitudes and behaviours, and they do find correlations. Otherwise, this would be a waste of time. But more importantly, in the last five to ten years, there's a new branch of value science that is exploring the extent to which the things that we see and hear and read about in the news and so on, uh, our, our lived experience, influences which values are 
active in us in that moment. In other words, the way in which our context primes our values. And what they're finding, uh, which speaks to this truthiness subject, is that our context can be a lot more important than our disposition, the way we tend to prioritise values, in determining which values are driving our attitudes and behaviours in that moment. In other words, the way in which we can be manipulated by values priming. I'm going to show you uh, one study, and uh, there are hundreds more, all demonstrating very clearly that when you engage certain values around the values map, you lead to certain attitudes and behaviours, and other values lead to others. Um, and what they're finding uh, is that before I tell you the results, is that our intrinsic values, so self-direction, universalism and benevolence values, are all associated with increasing people's pro-social and environmental attitudes and behaviours. Whereas achievement and power values, known as our extrinsic values because they're centred on external approval or reward, prime or engage our antisocial and environmentally destructive and more competitive antagonistic attitudes and behaviours. Now in this study what they did is they primed a whole bunch of students with different types of identity either as humans, which is our control group, as Missouri students, it was a university in Missouri, as American without giving them any context as to what that meant, as uh, extrinsic or intrinsic American. Now, those who were assigned uh, randomly to the extrinsic American uh, priming condition were reminded that the American people are known around the world for their focus on wealth, financial success and material gain. Americans are also known for their competitiveness and for their movie industry with its Hollywood ideals of beauty, celebrity and fame. There's a whole bunch of power and achievement values there. Those assigned to the intrinsic American priming condition were reminded that the American people are known around the world for their generosity and their willingness to pull together in times of need. Americans are also known for their ideal of self-expression, personal development and for their strong family values. A whole bunch of self-direction, universalism and benevolence values. Then what they did is they asked each of these groups or all of these individuals to recommend an ideal ecological footprint for America in five years' time. In other words, what they're looking to see is whether, because our humans are our control group, whether different types of identity would make people actually have different attitudes towards environmental policy. Uh, so uh, humans are our control group. They established the baseline. Those primed with the extrinsic American identity have had virtually no impact on their attitudes to the environment. Um, those primed as Missouri students recommended a little bit more of a reduction to ecological footprint, presumably because when we think about ourselves in smaller identifiable community groups, that engages our community benevolence intrinsic values. But those primed with an intrinsic American identity recommended steep reductions to ecological footprint for their country in five years' time, which is a radical change in environmental attitude purely based on the type of identity, American identity they were activated with, uh, which in turn engage different values. Now, scarily, those primed simply as American, without telling them what that meant, recommended increases to ecological footprint compared to the control group, which is a cautionary tale for us not to assume we know what people mean by their identity. So as Australians, we should do this or that. The point of what I'm talking about here is that we can bury our heads in the sand and we can assume that people are rational the majority of the time, and assume that the way in which to bring about the world we want to create is to convince them with all the facts and figures. Another thing that we do, uh, which is, I think, not helpful because it's not the way humans work, um, or certainly not what makes people think and act in pro-social and environmental ways, is we can take the dominant discourse of the day and use that to try and sell our message. 
And this is something that I see environmental groups and social justice organisations do all the time. We think that the only way to get people to care about the environment is to put a price tag on it. We think that the only way to get people to care about foreign aid and people living in poverty in other countries is to say it's in our national interest to do it because we'll make more money for our businesses and it'll protect us from terrorism. We think, uh, and I've got an example, I'm not showing it today for time reasons, but we think that the way in which to get Australians to care about babies dying, so stillbirth, um, is to, to point out the billions of dollars that it costs the economy because their parents don't show up to work for a few months. And this is all based on a really, really sad view of human nature. And it turns out it's not true. I don't have time for it, but we've got lots of research that actually looks at what people's actual values are and we know that overwhelmingly Australians and most people around the world are highly driven, significantly more driven by intrinsic values, self-direction, universalism and benevolence, than they are by these. And we know that when we communicate and we engage those values through our communications, those intrinsic values, they actually think and act in more pro-social and more pro-environmental ways. But we keep doing this because we see what's out there, we see the, the dominant media discourse and we think that we have to pander to it. And I've got so much research uh, to prove that that's not the case. Uh, but I don't have time to talk about it all today. But I'm happy to uh, answer specific questions. So I just want to point out one thing before I uh, open it up. And that is to say that there is a role for facts and for truth. And I do believe that, you know, I'm, I'm part of this movement because I do believe that we're on the right side of the facts and the truth. Might be just driven by my values. Um, but there is a role for facts in, in determining what our policies are, what our solutions are. That is the role of facts and truth. It is not as significant as we often think it is in terms of selling those policies. Um, I still believe that we should be true and we should not use the tactic of lies when it comes to truthiness, but we also have to acknowledge that humans, human brains operate in a certain way and rather than ignore that or resist that, which is the very definition of truthiness, we should actually uh, be thinking about how we use that to bring out the best in people uh, and, and create the world that we're trying to create. So thank you. Okay, we're open for questions. Yeah, once um, you've carefully framed your message, taking the advice, or splendid advice of the panel on board, how do you get it out there? given that we've got one of the highest media ownership concentrations in the world and that social media is increasingly just a narrow cast uh, echo chamber? Um, I reckon you start local. You know, newspapers are in trouble, but the ones that are still doing okay are local newspapers. Um, and that's about it, really. <laughs> Unless you've got a huge budget and you can advertise and... You know, it's always the issue for the Greens. Every campaign is, you know, bad news. We've got no budget. Well, for me, from a, an international perspective, I think that Australia has got a huge issue with um, the lack of a media reform movement. Like, um, and, uh, like the US and the UK both have a very strong media reform movement of media activists that are trying to change the way in which media ownership works. And I raised this issue even uh, when Naomi Klein's team was visiting Australia. And, there, and many, um, actually, um, meetings were held that brought together an incredible and impressive global movement of people working you know, in different uh, uh, sectors of the civil society, but also indigenous movements, women movements, uh, everybody together, union movements. 
but the only movement that I saw lacking and it was missing was a media reform movement. Now, how do you build a media reform movement? I think that actually this has been really one of my personal struggles when I moved to Australia because I thought it was easy and I realized it's not, absolutely not, because many media scholars and many journalists in my view are a bit afraid of being targeted, especially by the murdered press. And uh, what I was told as soon as I moved here was that, well, Ben, just leave that. You know, just leave that aside. And I think that actually probably the best way would be also to finally get together with, you know, climate activists together, but to acknowledge that if you really want to get the message across in Australia, you need to reform the media. And it's not acceptable that the last uh, uh, so-called reform has been approved by the parliament. It's just not acceptable in a, in a so-called Western democracy. It's something that should not have happened. It's, it's something that I think is just, uh, you know, um, something that should have brought people in the street. Why, why we managed to bring people in the street against Adani, no one would join us in a protest against media ownership rules because it's not cool, because it's not uh, you know, fun. And so I think that actually one of the answers would be start inviting media reformers and media activists and joining the movement and trying to really acknowledge that this is one of the major issues. So. Okay, next question here. Um, could you just talk about um, the relationship between emotions and media? Um, and what the interrelationship is, because so much is used uh, to campaigns that we call here. Um, and uh, in Australia, the particular role of humour and how that sits with um, That's a long lecture. <laughs> that would be a very long lecture. In 25 words. Oh, yeah, okay. I think humour is super important in Australia and in America, and I'd like to see Colbert being referred to, I'd love to see John Stewart and John Oliver. And there's an Australian comedian called Jim Jeffries who's over in America, and he's currently doing pretty much a John Oliver version mm. about America from an extremely Australian point of view. And if you if you don't like super ochre blokes, try and push through, because <laughs> the way he the way he represents it, I think, is a nice and interesting model for for bringing to, uh, out very serious issues, really terrifying issues at, at times. The the gun control thing, Las Vegas, all this sort of stuff. But I don't know, maybe just because he appeals to me because, you know, I'm a, a large and awkward bloke too, so maybe that's he's my in-group. But um, the, that, kind of, that kind of approach seems to work really well. And there's a lot of talk now of these comedians, the John Stewarts and so forth, being the new public intellectuals. But you can't do that, you can't do that cynically and you can't do that just as a straight copying of another culture. And I think that's where often we fall over in Australia. We just try and mimic immediately, let's do a John Stewart Daily Show, but we just plonk an Australian in there. It doesn't quite work. It needs massage. That's a start, but I think yeah, humour is a great way through, and Australia is a great, um, uh, very receptive place for that. Can I say something? So, something about emotion is uh, th there's lots of good reasons to try and engage uh, positive rather than negative emotions in people. Positive emotions people are happy to walk towards, negative emotions turn people off. As uh, one of the problems with fear based messaging is that if people aren't already bought into your issue, trying to scare them into caring, um, if they're able to ignore the message, then they will because it's much more comfortable to just ignore and move on with their lives. Um, but uh, the reason why values motivate us is because they either engage our positive or our negative emotions. So if I value equality and I experience or I witness equality, then that automatically produces in me a positive emotional reaction, which in turn motivates me to try and seek out more experiences of that, more experiences of equality or seeing more equality around me. Um, if I value equality 
and I experience or witness inequality, that produces a negative emotional reaction in me, so anger, frustration. And in equal measure, those negative emotions motivate me to try and prevent inequality or stop inequality from happening or not participating in it. Um, so it's not as simple as good versus bad emotion. Uh, it's often about what that emotion then drives us to try and change. So, yeah, it's... I think it's more complicated than that. Um, and I've seen, I use in my workshops lots of examples of incredibly powerful, intrinsic uh, value engaging communications that bring people literally to tears. Uh, people who, at the beginning of the workshop, said, oh, it's all fluffy stuff that couldn't actually motivate people. And it's just not true. We think that fear is the only emotion or the only way of engaging people emotionally, and, and that's just not true. got a problem with how our brain works. I really love the fact that we're relational creatures. I really love the fact that um, we relate to each other through stories. From, you know, babies through to holding the hand of someone who's dying. We, we are who we are. We are what we are because of the stories we tell each other and the relationships that we have. And I love that about the brain. It doesn't worry me at all that my brain looks at facts and goes, you know, doesn't accord with what I think. I, I really trust that. I actually really trust that. And I think just going to the previous question about communication and how do we do that, I mean, while I really appreciate there are people with fine skills, finely honed skills about how to nuance a message and how to communicate that, I also just want to say that we know what works because we know what works with each other. Kindness is really attractive. When, when we understand where we are at as a community, and right now it's no accident that Sydney's putting on, you know, the big anxiety project and, you know, there is huge static white noise anxiety in the community. So any messages that we have at the moment that are kind messages, but there are also containing messages of, I understand the anxiety and between us, it's gonna be okay. Those kinds of messages really are fantastic messages and they're not based on fact, they're just based on recognizing what is the emotional temperature right now and who are you and what can I do for you? And those rules never stop applying. And that goes to how our brain is configured, and I think that's a good thing. Um, Marcus Ford, community. Um, thank you so much for the contributions. I think it's a very timely discussion. 
Um, my question is about something that uh, Barack Obama said just shortly after he took office. He said that he's less concerned about his financial deficit and more concerned about the empathy deficit in the country. Now, recently there was a um, psychology professor in Yale, at Yale at the University that published a book called Against Empathy, and he makes the case for what he calls um, rational compassion. So he, he argues that undifferentiated empathy is actually um, dangerous with regards to some of the, um, the way that people interpret that they're obviously the kind of moral compass. And um, the book has raised a lot of eyebrows, a lot of debate. I wonder whether you have any views on, on that argument towards rational compassion. Many. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to bring it back to something I was kind of babbling at the beginning that, that it underlies a lot of these questions. And the way our brain works, I agree with everything I'm hearing so far, and I love the way we think too, but I think we, um, we're also compelled to try and find simple solutions to things, and, and we want to kind of, what do you want to do now? I just want to fix it, and you don't know what it is, you don't know what fix might look like, and rational empathy is seen as one of these, I suppose, confronting, but you know, it's another way of saying, let's, how are we going to fix things now? Empathy's great, not too much empathy, specific empathy. <laughs> But that, that's still very broad and general. So back to the point of acting local as well. But local's not just geographically local. It could be ideologically local mm. or specific problems, you know, communities of place, practice problem, and so forth. And, and a lot of these questions, I hear this a lot, is, you know, people are really underneath it all saying, can you just tell me how to fix it? Can you give me the cheat sheet? I get people want that. I don't have the cheat sheet. Maybe one of you guys is keeping it secret. I think you've got a lot of information. <laughs> but I think you've got you to be more, be more specific. You know, if you don't know what you're trying to achieve, I want it to be better. I'm, I'm sorry, that's not a thing. It doesn't mean anything, you know? Like, oh, I want it to be better too. What's it? My it's different to your it. Be clearer. I think that's one of the big things. Be really clear. And then also you can tell if you've won. A little win, you can go, that worked. Okay, it just worked over there, but it worked. So that empathy thing, I'm slightly off topic, but I mean, that's, I think, just another attempt to really kind of hone a thing and find a nice way of fixing something that may be not quite broken. I, I don't know, I, I just, I'm never convinced by these. I think they're another magic wand cure, and I don't, I don't buy it. I think you've got to be more specific rather than more general. Please argue with me. Any disagreement? We'll go to the next furious question. Furious agreement. Okay. But it's furious. Furious agreement. Um, totally yeah. furious. So should we start to address this? Well, yeah. like also in, re in reply in um, in response to that question and uh, and and yours too. Well, I think that actually we and I I am a political economist, you know, by uh, by training, and I I still believe that structures of power are actually incredibly important, and uh, if we don't address inequality, starting from asking questions about who has the power to change things, uh, I don't think that actually we can really achieve change. And I know, like, I would agree that actually it takes a long time, obviously, it's a long-term effort. But in terms of politicians, you know, you also um, have structural issues around, for example, the funding 
of campaigning around, you know, for example, the way in which your communication gets through, through, for example, media structures of power. So uh, we know very well that social media are actually um, very often reinforcing inequalities with, within the media system because they are echoing what the major gatekeepers are saying. And despite the fact that, yes, it's true, like when we have a, an hurricane or an earthquake, social media are where we are heading. But that really doesn't change the way in which also campaigns are run. And uh, so I, I wouldn't actually um, say that all politicians necessarily lie, despite the fact Machiavelli has been saying that since you know, the 18th century, at least, that everybody, you know, the prince, you know, is to be someone that knows how to lie to his people. But um, I, I still think that there is room for saying things straight, because when I saw the new prime minister of New Zealand uh, starting in his opening address and saying that capitalism has failed, and when I hear Jeremy Corbyn speaking in the UK, I think, well, maybe there is still hope. And actually, I believe that actually those politicians believe in what they say and in their speech. Um, the problem is, how do they achieve this? Because if you have a structural inequality that is present at every level of the institution, from the local to the federal, and you have a very high level of corruption as well, that obviously you know impacts on the way in which this change can happen. Then you have a new issue, and I you know I come from a southern European country. Well, corruption has always traditionally been uh, one of the most the biggest problem, right? And it's a structural issue that very often inhibits change and uh, really impedes, you know, even politicians that start with great ideas and they that don't necessarily are populist, but it really impedes because the system, you know, is um, actually um, in, impacting on the way in which politics is carried out in terms of policy. So I think that you need to start addressing those problems. And I think that actually the way in which inequality is perpetrated in our societies is spread through the media system. I think that because we live in a highly mediated society, you can't address the issue without addressing issues of media structures as well. And this is why media concentration is one of the biggest problems of our contemporary democracies in the Western, so-called Western world. So I don't know if that answers your question. Or... Any other comments on the politics? Or... I'd just like to say, I don't, I don't think all politicians lie, actually. Um, I guess I'm really lucky that I... <laughs> well, look, I've, I've worked with politicians, and I tell you what, I, I tell more lies than them, you know, which, as a former journalist, that may not sound much, but um, <laughs> I, I actually don't think... I think we're really fortunate in the Greens that I think, you know, we've got plenty of deficits, but one of our positives is that um, we actually believe in the policies. We believe in the stuff that, you know, we've got... You know, there's... Anyway, um, and I think it's really fantastic when we have got a really broad array of politicians who all communicate differently. And, you know, that's, uh, I guess, the Greens and One Nation, actually, are the only two political parties that have politicians in there who communicate authentically. Um, I've worked in the Labor Party. Um, they deal with things slightly differently. But even... <laughs> but even <laughs> But even so, you know... There was some truthiness there, was there? There's a whole lot of truthiness there. You know, I've worked with politicians in Labor who are absolutely resolute about telling the truth. I've got to tell you, with the exception of, you know, who's that clown who wrote Whatever It Costs? Yeah, Richardson. With the exception of him, 
I don't know any politician that has woken up and gone, I'm going to lie my way from go to woe all day. Most politicians would probably not say they are lying. They would say, even when I look at it and I go, you're lying your head off, Michaelia Cash. Um, <laughs> most of them would say, no, I'm not. I, I'm not. What you call a lie, I call a, you know, blurring of boundaries. Miscommunication. A miscommunication. Can I make yeah. an alternate fact? So, just, I don't think all politicians lie. And I, so I, I've worked over the last four years now with dozens of progressive organisations. Um, I only work with organisations I believe in um, who I actually think are capable of creating good progressive social and environmental change. Um, and I've got to say that while those organisations don't necessarily lie, I haven't worked with a single organisation in which they have not found themselves, after reflection on the values, spinning uh, to sell their cause or a campaign or an issue. Um, and happily, it turns out that if we are a bit more honest about why we care about the issues with the Australian public, it turns out we are more motivating in terms of getting them to join us and support us. Um, and so while not every politician lies and not every environmental and social justice organisation lies, in fact, most of them probably don't lie as such, we're all too caught up in the spin and thinking that we need to spin our values and why we care about an issue in order to uh, motivate people to, to join us. And the, the Sorry for picking on Adam Bant there. It's not unique. Um, but that is an example of a meme which is clearly designed to appeal to people who, uh, on the basis that people couldn't care about carbon pricing from the environmental perspective. So let's tell them that it's good for the economy and good for power prices. And we do that far too often. I, I get really worried about the word truth too. I think truth is a trigger word that sets up boundaries. If you start banding about who's got the truth and we're going to tell the truth, my impression very strongly is that gets people's backs up immediately. So as soon as you start doing it, we just want to talk the truth. I think you, you lose credibility very quickly and um, it's, it's a dangerous path. I think there are other ways to, to word it as well. I don't think truth is a good frame to use. It's too, it's too rich, it's too dangerous. Okay, up the back. I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I don't know if it's even related. I, I, I was listening, but then I kind of started thinking, oh, that goes there and that goes there. I, I'd be interested in, in seeing people more do um, what Julie just did and, and cross boundaries by saying what is probably quite a, co a controversial comment. The only two parties I know who really believe what they're saying to this extent and represent the values are you guys and One Nation. <laughs> now, that, on the surface, you know, if you're not listening to what she's saying, how dare you flip the table and off you go? But I think that's recognising that people who are almost the antithesis of what you almost the antithesis of what you represent. Um, are still going to have things that make sense, that match, that you can say yes to. And what I don't see very much at all, in fact, in politics, is someone getting up and going, you know what they say? Sweet, let's do it. Love that idea. And I, I mean, I got to a point with Tony Abbott, I pause for applause, how much I love the guy. That, is, that, that aside, if he'd actually got up there one day and said, you know what, Australia, vote for me, I fucking dare you. Look how, look how idiotic I really am, I don't give a shit. If he'd actually been that honest, I almost would have voted, I wouldn't have, but I mean, just to see what would happen. I'd be intrigued to see someone kind of throw it down and also, and, and show, ways in which you do agree with the other people, you're prepared to relate. You know, debate involves going into an argument, being prepared to have your mind shifted. And I don't see a lot of that going on in politics at all. If I could start seeing politicians who went, you know what, convince me, I, I, I want to change my mind, show me a better way, 
I think it'd be wonderful. It's probably a sweetly naive view. I live in Canberra. I go to, <laughs> I'm in an academic institution. You know, I'm a middle-aged white guy. Everything's sweet for me. It's a naive view, but that's what I'd love to see happen more. Admit the other people get some stuff right. That might just be another comment on top of your other comments, but you know, that's a, a kickoff point. Diane. Thank you. Um, my question is about uh, Mark's, Mark's slide that he had up there with the uh, values and how it's broken up. And I clearly saw myself and I heard somebody else behind me saying, oh, I can see where I fit in. And I thought, oh, I'm sure they're saying, well, that's kind of where the greens are up in that top right corner, the universal humanitarian and that. And I thought, well, we could actually look at all the political parties and, and kind of pigeonhole and pinpoint them on that same slide as to where they are. And I thought, well, what are we trying to do here as part of the greens? We actually want to expand outside of that. So if I'm going to take the ideas, the policies of the Greens, and my own values in that, and start expanding out and trying to get other people to vote, not knowing you know, how far we can move that expansion and who those people are that we want to get to vote for us, am I going to have to spin my own thoughts and values and policies? How am I going to attract those other people? Can I just say, that question is the reason I'm often so resistant to presenting this stuff in 10 minutes. Because that is a very logical, rational way of looking at and quickly making some assumptions about therefore what. Um, and it's absolutely, absolutely not. Um, it, so much research shows that Australians are far more attracted to and motivated by uh, self-direction, universalism and benevolence values than they are by achievement and power values. There is a bit of a complication in that security values are also very big for Australians, as are conformity uh, and tradition values to a degree. Even so, benevolence, universalism and self-direction, they are at the top. Um, it's, so when you're thinking about audiences, and I'm all, as a communication specialist in the past, I'm all for audience segmentation. But the way you do that is you look at your audience, whoever they are, if it's an individual or a large group of people, and you say, what are their intrinsic values? And what do I have to talk about in order to engage their intrinsic values? Because I can tell you across the board, you'll be able to find self-direction, universalism, and benevolence values in every single Australian. And you'll be able to engage those by talking about your issue from a perspective that makes sense to their lived experience. So if you're talking about climate change to a farmer, you talk about that very differently to how you would talk about it to someone uh, living in the middle of, of Sydney, young person, for example, because their lived experience is different, but they still both care about other people. And most people, and there is a segment of people, it's probably about a quarter of Australians, who actually think power and achievement is more important than caring about other people. But do we really need more than 75% of the population to win anything? <laughs> um, but so often we just, because of the media discourse, and we've also got research on people's incorrect perception of other people's values, we assume other people are selfish, and therefore we assume that we have to talk about that stuff to motivate them. So in anyone, and, and I've, I've done some work with the Greens at the federal level on actually mapping the different political parties on the map, um, there's, all, there's always some overlap in that intrinsic space. And knowing that if we can just bring that in, out in that person, that that will then be more motivated. <coughs> Does that actually... It's about finding the intrinsic values of that audience, knowing that they express them differently. Okay, next question up the back. Um, this is basically where I want to talk about young people and trust and connect. Thank you so much, panel, for everything you've said. We can connect some threads between that. Um, I, I have an eight and a half year old, and I was horrified the other day that she said something to me along the lines of, that's my opinion, and so that's, that's what's happening. And I, and, in contradiction to the facts. <coughs> and 
there is a challenge I think we have um, that there is a new generation that we're constantly talking about who we feel don't trust politicians, who aren't engaged, who, you know, we don't have, and they're exposed to the fake news and the fake media and all these values. And let's be honest, when you look at the advertising world and all of that power and achievement stuff that costs $5,000, we're soaking in it, to use another phrase. Um, and then we've got, you know, the dogs running around attacking poets because of mango poems. And I feel that the gap between the speed of technology, the fake media, the stuff that's going on, and the curriculum that we have is so large now that we're not, I, I worry that we are not giving our next generation um, the tools to operate within this space. And then we, sorry, this is all connected as well. And then we go and pay them pocket money to do chores. So they're priming their extrinsic values constantly. Um, my question <laughs> is how do we engage that next generation? What should we do? to ensure that they have the tools to engage with this problem. Look, I'm not convinced they're any worse off than we are, frankly. Um, I'm always, you know, I've got a 23-year-old who argues all the time about if she feels that way, it is, it is thus. Um, and, it's, you know, just we battle it out. Um, I don't think any of us are particularly good at having a critical view on the media we consume or the impact it's having on us. I actually think, I know uh, my kid, part of what they did in, in late primary school and high school was media studies, which God knows I never did. Um, so that there, she, she can see what's happening in the media with a far clearer eye than me. And not that she reads the media anymore or reads newspapers or anything. She gets her information via um, blogs and blogs. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't... I, I actually... Yeah, I challenge whether or not they're... I, I think they've probably got more resources than we have, actually. And I think their insight's probably more reliable. Christine? Well, I, I still think, oh, actually sorry. think that probably... Sorry, I mean, I know no, we have no, other questions, but I, I still think that actually um, making sure that in the, in the curriculum you have, um, for example, more units dedicated to environmental civic duties and how to behave in an in environmental way, you know, um, I think that that could be a very good starting point. And I don't see that, and I don't see that even in universities, for example. I mean, we launched for the first time an environmental communication unit, and you know, for the first time last year. And uh, so I think that actually um, that could really make a difference. Um, at the same time, I still think that because young people are just getting the news through Facebook or now Instagram or, you know, like the new, you know, Snapchat and all of that, and they're just sharing the news, we are letting those global conglomerates selecting the news for them. So in a way, you know, we're letting them making these decisions. So it's very important that they have the critical tools to understand uh, really what they are being fed. And that, that's absolutely crucial, together with an environmental education, I think. Okay. So, yeah. Christian? Uh, yes, Mark, thank you for your uh, commentary in relation to positive messaging and what being more powerful than negative. Except we're a political party and our lived experience is we go into an election campaign with a certain level of support in the public if the polls are to be, you know, even 
reasonably accurate. If that is because we've run positive agenda, we're positively out there, and there's been a quite a strong pushback in the Greens against going to negative advertising. People want to stay positive on message. However, come into the last week of the campaign, and the others go massively negative on the Greens. They're going to give your children drugs. They're going to, you know, if they have their way, there'll be terrorists on every corner in Australia with open borders and blah, blah, blah. And they will take three or four percentage points off the polls in that last week to the point where we now actually leave quite a substantial part of our advertising budget to respond to the negative messaging in that last week because we've lived this experience forever. So you say negative advertising doesn't work, but I would argue that fear has triumphed everything when it comes to refugees in this country and that it's been appalling in the last 17 years Trump. To, get, to get where we are now. So negative and fear has been the major component from Howard for the Conservatives and Hanson and Co ever since. So I'd like you to tell me how positive messaging, because we who are campaigning for compassion and generosity and inclusion would love to have the answer as to how positive Trump's negative when it comes to particularly the issue uh, of refugees. Okay, so the... I suppose there's two parts to that. One is to say that, okay, so one response is to fight back, fight fire with fire and fear with fear, or to try and, yeah, so on, on the issue of fighting security values with security values. The thing about our value system and why it is the way it is and why we seem to be so easily manipulated by our context is because that makes us as human beings incredibly adaptable. It's a really useful skill to be able to live in different contexts and behave differently according to the context. If we, if we were fixed in our behaviours, we wouldn't have survived as long as we did. Um, and it'll help us survive for a little bit longer. Um, what, and what, what is that? That is to say that different values are, are fixed in terms of the types of attitudes and behaviours they then lead to. So security values make us think in terms of black and white solutions. We don't want novel solutions when we are scared. It doesn't make sense when we're being chased by a lion uh, on the plains of Africa for us to think of self-directed, creative new ways of running. It makes sense for us to kill the beast or to flee. And so certain, so the idea that some people have, I'm not suggesting you have it, uh, but it's, it's, it's a common one, that we need to fight the fear with our, with our own fear if we do that, all we are doing is driving people to think and act more like our opposition wants them to. So then the question is, well, how do you beat the fear? And it's not always easy, because fear is a powerful motivator. Um, and, and that's where we need to get more creative and perhaps more concrete in terms of what we're talking about. Because intrinsic values, the, the first mistake people make when they think about values-based communication is they go, well, we have to talk about the, uh, use all this flowery values-based language. It's, it's not that. It's talking about um, real examples in people's lived experience of where honesty is important or where taking responsibility is important or where being open to new ways of doing things is important and better than being closed-minded. Practical um, messaging is more likely to work. However, I have seen examples like thorough research from very experienced uh, cognitive linguists on the issue of asylum seeking in Australia, in which we absolutely determined that intrinsic value was the most effective, but it still didn't beat our opposition's message. So it's not always going to be easy 
or possible, but the last thing we should do is assume that therefore we have to fight fire with fire because fire only burns everything down. Yeah. Can I just say too that the refugee issue is not just a question of framing at all. We've had 17 years of a bureaucratic transition from immigration to border force. We've had legislation go through at warp speed, redefining how we position Australia. And we've had the rollout of propaganda in relation to this you know, we are, you know, to use a term, we have been soaking in it. So it's unrealistic to think in that six-week fevered election campaign that we can actually make a run on what is huge heft put in behind that. That said, I think we need to get a bit more smart about priming the electorate for what is going to come in the last week and saying to the electorate very early on in the piece, we remember who we are as Australians. We remember what our values are. We remember a better Australia. And we are reclaiming that for all of us. So we're using conservative values. We're using really um, classic centre-right language to reclaim a humane Australia that has gone down the toilet. We say that at the beginning and we tell everyone that in the last week you are going to see a mud a mud fight. It's going to be really ugly and we are going to be it. Don't believe the hype. So there is something, a lot to be said about priming and a lot to be said about using the language of conservatives to reclaim the position that is rightfully ours. But, it, but it's a huge issue and it's not just a framing issue. But isn't it interesting also that you know, you're resorting to the language of conservatives in a way? <laughs> I, I mean, I isn't it, it is the language of conservatives, but it is seen as the language of conservatives. It's a space that has been appropriated. Yeah, that's right. Makes I just us fell for it. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> uh, but it's, yes, I did. Yeah, but it's it's fascinating because I, I actually totally get you know where yeah. you're going, and actually, and it, in a way, it gives us a sense of safety, right? So mm. it sort of you know makes us uh, you know it's. It's also true. Like it, like let's not ever leave that little bit out. You know, the truth when it is on our side is a very useful thing. And it's true, we used to be a better nation. Yeah, but for me, what was also relevant was the example that he gave about solar panels by a liberal, you know, on the, on the roof, right? So a liberal, uh, you know, a well-educated man that decides to have solar panels on the roof. And he does so because, first, he saves money, and secondly, it's cool. That's what you said, right? Yeah. So, and again, we're falling down the language of conservatives, right? It's cool and it saves money. So there must be a way really to challenge this and to say, well, it's better for the community and uh, it will you know, make sure that we can have you know, the resources to build a new community center down the road. You know, something that is you know, appealing to other ideals than saving money and being cool. Because actually, that's exactly the way in which I normally, and I used to do, especially in London, talk to um, the new labor. So when I had to go and brief and trying you know, to push for a new media policy, I was always trying to appeal to the sense of coolness and the sense of saving money or creating jobs, which is very similar to the sustainable development of minds, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So can we try to be creative, really change that and, and like appropriate you know, <laughs> from the language that is working? Because you know, this conservative language is working. And also the sense of fear. And actually, if you're claiming that we can defeat fear through fear, 
well, then probably it's not the kind of you know, answer that we want. So defeat I mean, cool with cool. <laughs> That's God. it. I didn't know the Conservatives owned cool. That's news to me. Yeah. I thought. I thought can, can I? Sorry. Just can I make one? Because you you raised you raised the issue there, and and Christine, you're talking about the, the fact that we save our budget so that we can refute all of their lies at the last minute, um, and there is some. Su some some of the budget. There is such an overwhelming body of evidence which says that the last thing that you should do when your opponent says mistruths which is getting uh, our electorate to think about the issue from their perspective, is reiterate those truths, so negating those truths. So saying, you know what they just said there, let me remind you of it, they said this over here, and it's not true. Um, and so often that is something that progressives are really, uh, really attracted to doing, and it just doesn't work. All we are literally doing in people's brains is in their neural circuitry is where we are further wiring that those neurons together which associate greens with you know irresponsible financial managers or whatever it is um, and that as a tactic is is as ineffective as using fear because even if we're saying hey you don't have to be scared about electricity prices you really don't electricity prices are fine it's totally fine with the whole electricity prices thing all we're doing is strengthening the public narrative and, and people's neural circuitry around carbon electricity prices. Um, and we've got, to, we've got to stop doing that. Okay, very, very quickly. First of all, to say that Adam Van was responding to an attack which says your policies will cost us too much. It wasn't because he was saying that is the most important thing and he says other things as well. I have done uh, another thing to throw in is I have done over the last few years large-scale surveys of the population in across Australia and in South Australia, asking how much people were willing to contribute significant but affordable amounts from their income if they knew it would reduce uh, the dangers from natural uh, catastrophes. And it was very interesting that one of the things that mattered was age. The younger you were, the more you were willing to contribute. But the other thing was experience, because the question was, have you or anybody you know ever experienced, suffered from a natural catastrophe? And the answer made about 10% points of difference increased those who were willing, uh, who were willing to contribute. Um, just, if I can have half another minute, I've been enormously encouraged. What will happen in Australia, we're still waiting to see. But the plebiscite in Ireland on same-sex marriage, what had happened was that the Catholic Church had lost trust because of all the revelations about child and that people were now able to come out when they saw what their neighbors were doing. They were able to remember the cousin, the in-law, the small child who were beginning to show gay tendencies, who were concealing. And they were saying, we do care about these people who are within our own experience. Instead of saying, forget about them, because we will go along with what is the mass belief? Um, and so I think those are things that matter. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Um, very quickly, uh, memory. To what extent do you think that memory um, 
is involved in people's construction of what they would present as a truth. Okay, and I'll, I'll get the last one here and then we'll get a last response from each member of the panel. Okay. Um, I just have a proposition. Uh, I'm interested in this idea of the stories that we tell each other. My proposition is that over the last at least 5,000 years of human history, the stories were told to us and we just accepted them primarily. But over the last 50 or so years, we're becoming more educated, more analytical and critical, have access to much more information, become more questioning of authority. And so the structure, those, those structures of authority are starting to break down across the whole society. What would be your comment on So that's an interesting story, do you believe it? Yeah, memory's important. <laughs> well, you know, experiencing, experiencing something has always been incredibly relevant, and I was listening actually very recently to a Democracy Now! episode talking about, for example, um, hurricane, you know, in the south of the U.S., and uh, most of the population were, were actually claiming, well, we know when it's coming, and we know what to do, and we know how incredibly powerful it is. So obviously that, you know, the experience and the memory of something, you know, is always impacting. But obviously, you know, that doesn't mean that, uh, like, in order to achieve, you know, change and trying to address uh, climate change, you know, through policies, we need to wait for an experience like that. But obviously we have always, uh, like, as you know, the way we interpret memories is very personal. So, you know, it's again, linked to our experience, and uh, it's, it's obviously also biased. So, you know, we need to take that into consideration when we communicate, you know, to, to people about, but, you know, I don't know if Mark wanted to add something to this. Um, yeah, no, I just, I think that that question about memories is very similar to your experience with the survey in which people who have a lived experience of an issue are more engaged in that issue. Um, and I think the, yeah, that, that's part of it, because as storytelling machines that our brains are, we will, we will put extra information on top of what's being presented to us because we just simply are unable to look at facts without add, adding a story on top. Can I give you a really quick example of that? Um, so uh, Alex was walking to school. She was worried about the maths test that day. She didn't think she'd be able to control the class once again. But as an office administrator, it wasn't really her job. As I told you those few lines, did you start picturing a boy perhaps at first, then you had to recreate that as a girl, and then all of a sudden it's a teacher, and now it's an office administrator. I didn't say any of those things. Your brains couldn't help themselves. Uh, and so this idea that we can seek the truth is, uh, is almost fatally flawed in that there is no objective truth uh, in the sense that our brains will always put our perspective on top of it. Uh, and, you know, we can install solar panels for a million different reasons around the values map. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's a how we interpret our lived experience that really matters. And the, the experience is really important. You know, I was part of a very small group of women who saw what was happening on Nauru with the systemic rape of women there a couple of years ago. The Saturday paper ran that story. A bunch of us got together and said, we've got to send some journalists there. We went on Facebook and created a small group to say, let's send Wendy Bacon and Carmen Lawrence to Nauru to find out what's going on. We got $20,000 within 24 hours from women. We got 23,000 signatures overnight from women because women 
really uh, it cuts across the refugee issue. When you say sexual violence against women, women don't ask refugee, not refugee. It's like there is a memory, there is a shared memory and a shared experience in that, and it is a very powerful force. So, you know, a bit of a bummer to end on, but, but that, that was an extraordinary... Um, it was really clear to us in the group that there were women chucking dough in at a rate. We had to shut it down because the money just kept coming. And they were doing so, not necessarily because they had any kind of direct relationship with refugees, but because they absolutely knew what it would be like to live on an island with your, the predator had, with, you know, prowling around you every night. And it resonates. So experience really matters, memory really matters. Thank you very much, everyone.